Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a no-film school podcast. I'm Liz Nord. I'm John Fusco. I'm Charles Hain. It is January 4th, 2018, and on this first show of 2018, rumors of a major merger that could change the industry as we know it, again, results of the 2017 box office returns, the most popular gear rentals on ShareGrid, and as always, news you can use about new gear, upcoming deadlines, indie film releases, and Ask No Film School. Happy New Year, everybody! We are coming at you from downtown Brooklyn, New York, home of No Film School, and as always, we're here to bring you everything you might have missed while you were busy making films. Happy New Year, guys! Happy New Year! Happy New Year! Welcome back! Whee! How was everybody's time? Did anyone do the Kylo Ren challenge? I mean, did we get really ripped and wear a high-waisted set of pants? I'm working <laughs> you did. on the ripped part. You can go to the gym. I, uh, I'll also abstain from this question, too. Oh, you're going to make that one listener really mad. Was that on Twitter? Yeah. yeah. All right. So I've I, my New Year's resolution is to get good at Twitter. I don't know what that means, but I like logged into Twitter. People on Twitter are mean. Yeah. No, they're not actually mean, though. I feel like they that just... guy was sticking up for me. So thanks, oh. that guy. I don't know. I For anyone who needs reference because no one else <laughs> understands what we're talking about, sometimes we get comments on Twitter uh, about our hosting abilities and style and uh yeah so me and charles both got called out this past no it was two just weeks. you john no charles also got called <gasps> out i saw that. i got some call outs. Shit, I missed yeah. That. yeah yeah i okay. got called that's why i was saying everybody on twitter is mean i looked i just joined twitter and all oh. i saw there were a bunch of people being like charles hayne yet again demonstrating his lack of insight into technology and i was like i've no. never met you who are you well, you get a lot of compliments too on twitter i need to start looking for them I, i'm gonna go find the nice people on twitter I hate those ones that are like, Liz Film looks so pretty on radio. <laughs> what? No, they don't say that, but it's funny. Yeah, I was going to say, no matter how mean people are to me on Twitter, I'm still a dude, so they're probably not as mean to me as they are to like any lady journalist on I Twitter. No, But anyway, Jim John Jim here got called out for being contrarian. I got in trouble for not sharing my opinion on Star Wars. <laughs> I mean, um, also, I, f- I saw Star Wars on Christmas, and I don't understand why everyone hates it. I loved it. I thought it was great. What am I missing? I thought it was awesome. Well, thank you for sharing your opinion, Charles. <laughs> Super beautifully shot. Uh, everything was totally awesome. Uh, the The guy who played the uh, the code breaker was great. The casino thing went on maybe too long. Oh, the casino was annoying, but the space chickens were cute. Well, and did you know the space chickens were only there because they weren't allowed to move remove the emus? So that island has not emu e- birds. Not e- emus? Emus are, that's a different t- kind of, sorry like to be ostriches. contrary again. <laughs> wow, but, John, uh, here you go. I am a bird expert and uh, emus <laughs> an are, yeah, I'm an ornithologist. I'm reading a book about birds right now. And uh, emus <laughs> are large, flightless birds that live in New Zealand and Puffins. Australia. Puffins. Yeah. Oh, Puffins. Like the breakfast cereal. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, there were puffins on the island and they're endangered so they weren't allowed to move them. So they made those birds up. Oh, to, to like digitally CGI hide them? the puffins. That is so interesting. That is a fun fact. Fun fact. Fun fact. Anyway, and we've we gone... got John to say something about Star Wars. Good job. Yep, we've that's gone it. way off the rails uh, before this episode even started, but I kind of love it. And um, the truth is, you guys out there and gals, we love hearing from you on Twitter. I mean, we prefer that you're nice and no, I'll that you up. ask questions. I'm ready for your Twitter. But, uh, I'm going to get strong. I can handle it. Bring it. Yeah. I'm yeah, ready for That's how this. I feel, too. I don't care. We like hearing from you. Be nice to me. You can be mean to them. Okay. So, anyway, 
here we go with headlines. Should we go with headlines? We never talked about what we did over winter break. No. Let's not go with headlines. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay, what'd you do over winter break, John? I'm not saying what I did over winter break. I hate Liz. this. <laughs> Someone get me out of here. Oh, maybe I should say yes, and that's what he told me. He said, uh, you know. Did we he, get improv notes? Yeah, on our I was like, you're giving me improv notes on a. Okay, well. He didn't know you were a trained actor. Yeah, apparently not. Apparently doesn't listen to podcasts enough because I say it a lot. <laughs> Uh, uh, what did you do for your Christmas vacation, Liz? Well, for my holiday vacation, Charles. Ooh. Uh, Twitter, bring it. No, we can say Christmas now. We can? Yeah. Yeah, Donald Trump made it okay. Yep. Well, he mandated that we say Christmas. Therefore, I'm definitely saying holiday. I know, but it's so frustrating that now if I use the word Christmas, I feel like I'm participating in some right-wing dog whistle. And I'm like, no, it was- Just Merry Christmas. Can't Merry Christmas just be Merry Christmas? Also, apparently, the Christians used to want to say Happy Christmas because Mary implies drunk. Ooh, I so there like was like a hundred years ago, there was a big battle over Christmas because Christians wanted us to stop saying Merry Christmas. I'm just going to start saying Drunky Christmas. Drunky Christmas. Hashtag. Anyway, I went to Curacao where a lot of people were drunk. Curacao liqueur, by the way, in case you were wondering, is disgusting. But the sunshine and the dancing in the streets part is awesome. And you guys can't see this, but she has beach hair. And it's like really, it's summer vibes. It's cool beach air, even though we are about to face a bomb cyclone winter storm. As this podcast airs, my hair says, F it. Anyone else have anything to add before we get into actual headlines? No fucking way. Yes. And I'm also dying for this headline. This headline's crazy. (laughs) (laughs) No, you guys have no idea. This headline's great. If it's still the one that it was this morning. Are we ready? I'd I'd give it a four at best, this headline. (laughs) John, you're fired. (laughs) Anyway, in our last episode of 2017, I predicted some consolidation among the streaming services this year. And our very first announcement of 2018 is a rumor of just such a consolidation, but one that actually comes as quite a surprise. Except to me, who's apparently psychic. Last year, we reported about Apple's steady moves to launch its own streaming service to rival Netflix and its billion-dollar investment in original programming. Now, Business Insider reports a strong likelihood that Apple might look to buy Netflix altogether. This wouldn't have been likely at all until last month, when Donald Trump's new tax plan offered not only a cut in corporate taxes, but also a one-time allowance for companies to repatriate cash stored overseas without a major tax hit. So Apple has about $250 billion in cash, much of it in foreign jurisdictions, which previously it was unable to bring back to the U.S. without these, you know, major taxations until this one-time exception hit. So analysts from Citi estimate that the company would only need about a third of that to buy Netflix, and the analysts predicted a 40% chance that the ghost of Steve Jobs would make a bid. So what would that mean for filmmakers? Well, more consolidation means fewer platforms on which to showcase your work and fewer outlets to potentially buy your work, which are generally not great things. On the other hand, if Apple and Netflix technologies combine, allowing Netflix audiences to easily purchase films for download, maybe more viewers would be inclined to do so, which would be a good thing for filmmakers. Again, these are just predictions for now, and neither Apple nor Netflix has commented on the prospect at the time of recording, but this is a story that we will definitely be watching closely in 2018. This 
piece of news is particularly interesting to me because literally yesterday I was talking with a friend who will remain anonymous who was like, I'm shorting Netflix right now because their debt's crazy. And then this news comes out and I'm like, yeah, their debt is crazy. Why is their stock value not going down? Because their debt situation, they owe so much money to so many people. And that's the upside of this for me. It's like if someone bought Netflix, Netflix can survive. Whereas right now they're making this huge gamble that their uh, original content is going to be enough to keep them alive. But they've also... They only have like one or two really good shows a year, and then they have a bunch of terrible shows. So I actually am excited by the possibility of this. I also don't think this releases decreases platforms. Is iTunes still big numbers? Well, Apple's original content that's come out so far is not getting high viewership, which you know bodes well for Netflix potentially. But I mean, in terms of filmmakers making like a sale, when you look at your distribution platform at the end of your release cycle, and you're like, all right, I want to get this from theatrical, and I want to get this from VOD, and then I go to online streaming, and I get this from Netflix iTunes isn't a big negotiator in that world anymore, is it? Like, Well, it is a big way filmmakers are making money, believe it or not. I mean, filmmakers get so little of the of the percentage of each sale, but there are certain films that have just done, like niche films especially, that have done really, really well on iTunes because people buy them. Well, and the nice thing that iTunes still gives you is the ability to hard link to, like, as opposed to with Netflix, your movie's on Netflix, you can't, like, link to it from your website. You can't, and those extra views on Netflix don't bring you much extra revenue. Whereas if you have a website and a big social following, you can link to the iTunes and drive direct sales that give you direct money. Ooh, this consolidation might be bad. It, it might be good, though. It might be good, again, if people could buy directly from Netflix. If they like the film so much they want to own it, and thanks to Apple technology, they could buy it right there. That could be a good thing. So you're picturing like a pop-up where it's like, this movie disappearing from Netflix this Friday. Buy it now. Because Netflix loses movies all the time. Ooh. So we'll see. Very interesting. And and the logos could merge real well, I think. Just think about it. Just like gnaw on that. Hmm. <laughs> So all of this is happening as theaters are still trying to figure out what the hell to do with themselves. The Playlist reported earlier this week that movie ticket sales in 2017 reached their lowest levels since 1995, declining 4% from last year. Now, this was still over a billion tickets, and as they're more expensive than they were 22 years ago, there's still plenty of money being made. But still, the writing's on the wall, and companies are looking for alternatives, including premium VOD and limited release windows, allowing people to see movies at home faster. One pretty exciting thing that the playlist also revealed is that against the backdrop of Weinstein and the whole Me Too movement, the top three highest earning films at the 2017 box office had female leads. And it's the first time that's happened since 1958. The films were Star Wars The Last Jedi, Wonder Woman, and guess what else? I, I wouldn't have guessed this one. I guess Beauty and the Beast. You cheated. It's right there in front of me. How could I not cheat? <laughs> Charles wasn't looking. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's 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 really a wonder when you have to look back to the 1950s as being like a progressive time with pro-women <laughs> attitudes. Insane. Like... Insane. Anyway, yes, John, it's Beauty and the Beast. And the New York Times added that the top comedy of the year, Girls Trip, was also anchored by women. I was going to guess Girls Trip, actually. I, I heard it was actually but really John, funny. But John jumped on me with his excessive Contra- contrariness. Yeah. I was just doing yes and. So Girls Trip, top comedy. And the top film to play in limited release was Lady Bird. Two of the five films I mentioned were also directed by women. Of course, Patty Jenkins for Wonder Woman and Greta Gerwig for Lady Bird. So if the fact that all these industry shifts and uncertainties are making room for new voices and faces to emerge, we are all for it. Here's to more films from women, people of color, and queer talent in 2018.
finally, at the end of the year, I did our annual roundup of film luminaries who we lost in 2017 and was saddened to learn that a singular talent passed away that very week. Production designer Therese de Perez, whose impressive list of accomplishments included creating the iconic look of Darren Aronofsky's Black Swan, died at age 52 after a battle with stage 3 breast cancer. Deprez began her career on era-defining 90s films such as Tom Kalen's Swoon and Mary Heron's I Shot Andy Warhol. She was highly praised throughout the industry, with veteran indie producer Ted Hope tweeting, There are not many people who have inspired me in so many ways than Therese Deprez. Rest in peace, Miss Deprez. And moving on to gear news, what do you have for us to kick off the year, Charles? Surprisingly, this year's already off to like a really hot start with a whole bunch of stuff that is all launching today, January 4th. But we had like early information, which is why we know about it all for as we record it on Wednesday. So the, the biggest news of the day for tech is Teradek and Small HD have teamed up to create the brand new 703 Bolt, which is a combination video monitor and wireless receiver. Oh. So they first showed us this device back at NAB where they brought out like a nice CNC machined thing. And I had the reaction that like every, I think, product designer wants, whereas I immediately saw it and I was like, oh, my God, I had no idea that I wanted that, but I need that. So currently, like what most people do, like I have a 702 OLED. Most people have some like similar 5-inch, 7-inch. But if you want to turn it into a wireless thing, you need to like rig a Sidekick 2 to it. You need to then put like an add-on power and then you need to run all these power cables and you're always like wrapping them with bungees and you're trying to make it a compact unit and it's always like complicated and weighs a little too much. And by combining them together into this one like seamless, streamlined, no-cable unit, they've like increased the functionality tenfold. No longer are you going to be like turning around and see the director that you just loaned your thing to is like put it down on the food cart because it was too heavy or caught the cable on something because they weren't paying attention. Like a simple streamlined unit. It's so smart. It's going to be really popular. You're going to see them all over set soon. Um, Right now it's only built around a normal panel. Uh, It's a 1500 nit uh, HDR panel and they claim 100% Rec. 709, but right now we still get better color accuracy out of the OLED. So I'm kind of hoping this thing will be popular enough that maybe an OLED version will come out down the pipe, although OLED's not bright enough for the exterior. So who knows? Um, It's going to be really exciting. I think you're going to see a lot of them around. If you've been waiting to buy a monitor, uh, this is probably it because then you can get wireless signal from all of your Teradex. Up next, ShareGrid. Uh, has released their year in review information for 2017. There's been a lot of great like year in review posts coming from like we've run a bunch of great ones and a bunch of other people. But ShareGrid was really interesting to me because there's so much cool data to unpack about like what people are actually using in the field and what's going on there, which is super cool. The big news for us um, are that as fans of little cameras like mirrorless units, they're running one in 1.3 times as much as DSLRs, and they're bringing in 1.7 times the revenue which means they're going out way more and they're going out for longer, which totally makes sense with the A7S and the X-T2 and the GH5 being really popular, but it's fun to see confirmation of that. Do they know which one is the most popular of those cameras? The absolute number one most popular item of any type on ShareGrid is the A7S Mark II. Cool. That is the thing. And the most popular combo, A7S Mark II with a Ronin, Hmm. Uh, which brings us to the news that I kind of found shocking Not only is the Ronin, like, their number one gimbal, the Ronin, the only two gimbals that even make a dent on their platform is Ronin and Movi. All of the other competitors haven't really dug in yet. I was kind of surprised Tilta 
uh, wasn't really in the mix yet, but even Tilta hadn't really made a dent. Beyond that, the Ronin is destroying the mode Mofi 8.6 to 1. Wow. Which is crazy. I mean, Mofi used to be the standard. More expensive. Mm. And that's the interesting thing about ShareGrid. ShareGrid is like a very specific community of like owner-operators. And I, you end up knowing a lot more people who own Ronin because it's affordable, whereas Movies tend to be a higher-end thing. And I think with Movie you end up hiring a operator with the unit a lot. So I know a lot of like freelance people who are like, oh, hire me in the Movie, mm. And that doesn't show up on ShareGrid yet because ShareGrid doesn't do labor. It just does parts. Whereas I think the Ronin is the like more approachable, I can use it myself thing. Okay, that makes sense. Although, interestingly, it was also the number one device they had complaints about. But the suspicion is is usually they would get it back to the owner and the owner would be like, no, this is fine. They just don't know how to use it. So Ronin still in that interesting little space where it's like hard to use but approachable and people want to rent it. But 8.6 to 1, although that's better than last year. Last year the it was even worse. So Moby is making up some ground. It's going to be interesting to see what happens next year on ShareGrid because now we're going to have the Movi Pro and the Ronin 2. The Ronin 2 is super user-friendly and like really uh, much easier to use than the Ronin 1, but it's the same price as the Movi 2, the Movi mm. Pro. So it's going to be really fascinating to see next year where we check in with that. So yeah, hopefully that will be interesting to you guys. Um, last up, Kino has rolled out version 1.4. First off, if you don't know Kino... Uh, for the longest time, I didn't either, and I didn't really think I needed, like, a dedicated footage browser since, like, whatever, you can just always fire up Resolve or your NLE to look at your footage. But I've started using a dedicated footage browser because it's, like, a lighter piece of software that's only designed for one thing, and it helps you organize your footage better and delete stuff, and, like, you don't have to deal with everything as much. So I think it's worth a look. And the nice thing about 1.4, it now supports Windows. It's added LUT support which is great so that if you've got flat image out of, like, an EVA1 or something like that, you can drop a LUT on it and you can preview it with proper image quality, which is super cool. And they're really pushing the Cineform codec, or really they've added the Cineform codec, which GoPro is really pushing. As a lot of people consider leaving the Apple universe, uh, we're going to have to leave ProRes behind. And GoPro is really trying to put Cineform in place to be the codec people switch to. And uh, Kino has added adaptation to that. So uh, it is definitely something to look at if you're looking for like a footage browser or like a lightweight dailies transcoder. We also use Kino here if we're reviewing cameras, we use it to pull the stills because it can pull full res stills even when not viewing the footage full res. Oh, that's cool. And now moving on to Ask No Film School. A Williams asks. <laughs> no. <laughs> I believe it's A. Williams. Is One it? of the two Williams, Serena and... No, I think it's Allison Williams. Allison Williams. From, From Get Out. Come on. <laughs> One of those Williams asks, how do you know what you're getting if you invest in an old lens? Charles? So, A. Williams. You should probably consider adding your first name to your profile, although I've enjoyed the mockery. As with all things, the answer to your question is... Testing, reading, a bit of risk, and a lot of luck. So the reason why DPs love old lenses is a bunch of reasons. First off, they used to be more affordable, although now that old lenses are so popular, they're not as affordable as they used to be. But you could still get a full set of like beautiful super speeds from the 80s for way less than a brand new set of Master Primes. You could probably get a set of super speeds for the price of one Master Prime. So they're more affordable. 
And as digital cameras got sharper, people love vintage lenses because some of the softness in the older lens designs would like take that sharpness off the uh, digital imagery. But the only real way to know what these lenses look like is a bunch of research, testing, and reading. So like you can go on ShareGrid, bringing up ShareGrid twice, they have the vintage cinema lens tests that you can watch online where you can look at every single vintage cinema lens that's available on their platform all shooting the same shot. You can even compare them side by side. They built a nice tool for that. So if you're interested in vintage lenses, there's a lot of tools out there to go looking. But the other place I would say you'd want to look is I think you should look at articles on our site, obviously, but also American Cinematographer and some other things like that because it's one of those things DPs are always talking about when they're talking about the shooting of their project. Now, you cannot get beyond your own testing. No matter how good the share grid testing is, the best thing you could possibly do is your own tests. So go on ShareGrid or KitSplit or whatever is in your area or go to thrift stores and see what you can adapt to the camera you have and do as much testing ahead of time as you possibly can. Knowing, like, there is no, like, one vintage cinema lens look. There's all sorts of looks. Kawas look way different from Lomos. There's all this variety. And getting to know the variety is like a big part of what you bring to the table as a DP so that when you're in a conversation with a director and a director's like, ah, I really want this like creamy, soft kind of look, you know, oh, maybe I'll find these like Cook Speed Pancros. Or if they're like, you know, I really want like a very sharp like 80s kind of thing, you're like, ah, maybe Ultra Primes or whatever. So you'll get to know them. And it's part of what a DP should know, but like no DP isn't born knowing it. Like you just have to go out there and and read a lot and test a lot and play a lot and sometimes buy random stuff on eBay on a whim and find out what it looks like once you get it. Yeah, for me, um, I was also like, this is something that I was thinking about when shooting my own short. And and originally I knew I wanted to shoot it on an anamorphic lens, um, but we didn't know whether to go with like a newer look or an older look. And for a while, I was kind of just like, oh, I should go with Cook because, you know, like getting new Cook, I think they're S4 anamorphic lenses, $170,000 value, like that shit would be awesome. But then my DP, to uh, go along with Charles Point, uh, we watched Halloween together and he was like, well, maybe we shouldn't be using these ultra like high resolution lenses that will give you this really sharp, clear picture where we want something else. And that's not a decision I would have been able to make really alone um, because I don't have that knowledge. And then we actually went to several different rental houses, um, online inventories, and a lot of rental houses will actually uh, feature shorts that they've shot on the lenses. So we watched a few of those shorts um, and we also compared the shorts shot with the vintage lenses to the shorts shot with the new Cook lenses. And it was really clear right then and there which one we should go with. Which is? I'm dying. We went with the older lenses. We went with these anamorphic uh, Lomos um, Ooh. that we rented from Ari, actually. Um, so, yeah. And then another thing would be, I guess, you know, when you're buying these lenses is, you know, is, is the source trustworthy? <laughs> right like which is which is tricky with russian right because there's like a whole community of people who rehouse russian glass but there's also a whole bunch of people who just randomly find it in closets and put it on ebay yeah so uh, that's another thing to consider for sure it's like are you are you buying from a an established place like i mean i don't think you can't buy these lenses from ari but uh uh yeah versus just some guy off ebay that's uh there are great ebay lens sellers but it's it's uh 
learn about the people you are buying from. Yeah, and just, I guess, ask to see footage if you can, right, from the lenses. If you're buying from someone on eBay or someone who's reselling these lenses, can you In 2017, you should always be able yeah. to see footage. Like, how hard would it be to throw it on some camera and put some stuff on Vimeo? Right. Yeah. No, I love the fact that all the online people usually have shorts shot on the things. That was a terrific yes and, John. So there are some terrific indie films coming out to kick off the new year. The first film that we'd like to highlight this week is coming to Amazon Prime Instant on January 7th. It's a ghost story. For a while, this was Emily Booter's favorite film, which isn't that much of a surprise considering she is now a ghost herself. Rest in peace, Emily. It's that Rooney Mara and Casey Affleck starring movie about a ghost who haunts his living wife covered in a sheet, which David Lowry shot in a secret on a small budget in his home state of Texas, just after completing Pete's Dragon for Disney. But the film itself is about more than ghosts. It's a meditation on grief, time, and eternal return. As Emily said, it will remind you with a heavy heart that you are only passing through. The boxy 133-1 aspect ratio with the corners rounded off gives each frame of a ghost story a photographic feel. Cinematographer Andrew Droz Palermo does indeed treat every frame like a photograph. He pays careful attention to the movement of light, often framing shots with streaky or dappled light, lending the film the immersive quality of a nostalgic reverie. As you can tell, this is classic Emily Booter. Rest in peace. And if it's not her favorite movie of the year anymore, we can at least say it features Emily's favorite scene of the year because she just wrote about it in one of our end-of-the-year posts. From the grave. Saying that it also has the best pie-eating scene in all of movie history. A long take captures Rooney Mara devouring a pie like it's the only good thing she has left in this goddamn universe. The ghost of Emily. She put the boo in Booter. <laughs> I came up with that one myself. Good yes and, Liz. And now, on to our Netflix releases. Creep 2 came out, uh, I think, like a week ago. Um, we all know Mark Duplass has a knack for making indies, but many do not know he can also be one creepy-ass dude. No, not creepy in the way we've become accustomed to seeing men portrayed in the industry uh, after they've been outed over the past couple of months, <laughs> but in the way that he plays slashers so well that he'll scare the pants off you. Not forcibly remove your pants. <laughs> Goodness. So this is the sequel to the 2014 horror flick Creep, shot in the style of a documentary from a videographer who answers a Craigslist ad for a one-day job in a remote mountain town, only to find his client is not at all what he initially seems. This sequel similarly follows a video artist who, looking for work, drives to a remote house in the forest to meet a man claiming to be a serial killer. But after agreeing to spend the day with him, she soon realizes that she made a deadly mistake. Both films were written by Patrick Bryce and Mark Duplass with Bryce directing, and Mark Duplass plays that strange serial killer on which both films are centered around. Coming to HBO on January 8th is David Bowie, The Last Five Years. HBO acquired the rights to this documentary that focuses on Bowie's final two albums, the Next Day and Blackstar and his play Lazarus. It premiered on BBC earlier last year. It's a companion piece to David Bowie Five Years, the 2013 documentary in which director Francis Wheatley meditated on the pivotal period of Bowie's fame from 1970 to 75. In the last five years, we see clips of Bowie culled from throughout his whole career, and we sit around with the musicians he made those last two albums with and with his longtime producer, Tony Visconti. 
The Strange Ones is coming to theaters on January 5th. This moody and mysterious narrative was co-directed by Lauren Wolkstein and Christopher Radcliffe. Wolkstein, by the way, was on the podcast during the previous South by Southwest for her work on the omnibus feature Collective Unconscious. I saw it back at this year's South by Southwest, where its young lead actor, James Friedson Jackson, won a special jury recognition for breakthrough performance. And by the way, fun fact, this film was on uh, wacky director John Waters' top 10 list from 2017. So in it, Friedson Jackson plays a boy on the run from an apparent crime with an apparent older brother who turns out to be something much different. It's what the kids today might call a mindfuck. I also interviewed Wolkstein and Radcliffe during the festival, and what's so cool about their story is that they accomplished what I think many of our listeners attempt to do. They turned their original short, also called The Strange Ones, into a successful feature. So we talked about the details of their six-year road to feature production in the interview, and it's definitely worth a read. We'll link to it in this week's podcast post. Six years. I know. And also coming to theaters on January 5th is Molly's Game. I feel like Aaron Sorkin has been in the game for so long at this point that it's hard to believe that this film actually marks his directorial debut. The screenwriter of such great projects as The West Wing, A Few Good Men, The Social Network, Moneyball, and Steve Jobs has a writing style that very few wouldn't be able to recognize at this point. It's almost as if he's an auteur screenwriter, so it's exciting to see how his frenetic dialogue will translate visually on his first feature. It follows the true story of Molly Bloom, an Olympic-class skier who ran the world's most exclusive high-stakes poker game and became an FBI target, which you might not be able to gather from the trailer because I remember watching the trailer and being super confused about what this movie was about. But um, that's what it's about. Hmm. Jessica Chastain plays the titular Molly, while Idris Elba and Kevin Costner co-star. And finally, coming to theaters for the first time on a wide release, is The Room, January 10th. Man, what is there to say about The Room? It's the worst movie ever made. It's so terrible, it's truly amazing. Its star slash director are a complete enigma. It is the film that The Disaster Artist is based off. Most importantly, after 14 years, the film is finally having a wide release in theaters across the country. So normally it just tours around, and it, there's never a there's never been a release date where it has just uh, hit the country all at once, and uh, everyone could go see it. I just saw the room for the first time about a month ago because I really wanted to see the Disaster Artist, and man, it's really something else. It's certainly not something that everyone will enjoy, but try and get through it at some point in your life if you can, especially if you plan on seeing the Disaster Artist. If anything, it's an incredible example of what could go wrong if a first-time director is given an unlimited budget with complete control. I had to break it up into two nights <laughs> because I was sober watching it, and um, it was hard. It was—I mean, it was—it's—it's it's so bad that like you just have to watch it. It's—it's it's gripping, but it's also so bad that maybe you couldn't be able to get through it in its entirety <laughs> the first watch. It might be hard to describe, but I'm so curious because, I mean, I've seen a lot of bad movies. Like, what makes it so bad? I mean, it's just... I It's the way he takes tropes. It's like, it's the way he takes tropes and he tries to... It's just, I, I, I can't I can't describe it. I, I'd, ha- oh, I'd wow. say it would have to do something with the tropes. Puts them there totally unaltered, I guess. It's like, if you... I don't know if you'd heard about movies, if you'd heard about like what movies were 
and then you were asked to make one, that's probably what the room would be. Oh, interesting. It's it's mind-blowing. Anyways, why not see it in theaters if you can? That's how it got its start, you know? And uh, a ton of these showings have already sold out, so make sure and check and see if your local theater is playing it, and then, you know, why not? So the plot is as follows. This is what I was talking about. Johnny is a successful banker who lives happily in San Francisco uh, in a townhouse with his fiancée, Lisa. Very important, the names. One day, inexplicably, she gets bored with him and decides to seduce his best friend, Mark. And that's that's pretty much everything that happens in the movie. Um, so when The Disaster Artist came out, we re-released our original interview with The Room's director, Tommy Wiseau, and he, I didn't know we had an interview with Tommy Wiseau. That's pretty cool. It's fascinating. And he's passionate, to say the least. So we'll link to it in the podcast post. And he is just a complete enigma. The dude, like, never reveals anything about his background and, like, how he got the money to make the movie. And we don't know how old he is, uh, where he comes from. It's crazy. Uh, and he'll never answer those questions because he knows that it, like, feeds into his publicity. So, um, smart dude, crazy dude, weird dude, the room. Which usually make the best interviews. And as the year kicks off, we're back into having some pretty big grant deadlines. The ITVS open call has a deadline of January 8th. If you have a work in progress for a standard broadcast-length film... This co-production funding of 150000 to 350000 from ITVS is the stuff documentary dreams are made of. They're looking for exceptional storytelling that's in line with their mission of stories that take risks, tackle important issues, and are seldom seen in public media. And they partner with you to help you finish it and then distribute it on public television. So it's a pretty amazing deal if you can get it. And the following day on January 9th is the deadline for the film independent Fast Track, Sloan Fast Track Grants. This three-day film financing market held during the LA Film Festival could be what you need to get your film off the ground. Not to mention, one producer will get an extra $20,000 if they're chosen for the Alfred P. Sloan Producers Grant. So to apply for the Sloan Fast Track Grant, you must apply for the Fast Track and provide a statement on how the project fulfills the mission of the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation. The applicant must be attached as producer and possess the rights to the script with which they are applying. The screenplay should have a scientific, mathematical, and or tech theme and storyline, or have a leading character that's a scientist, engineer, or mathematician. But documentaries and science fiction projects are not eligible for the Alfred P. Sloan Fast Track Grant. And now on to the National Endowment for the Humanities Media Development and Production Grants, which have their deadline on January 10th. These are the big daddy of government support for documentaries that address the humanities. And they still exist! Last year, at this time, we were wondering if they would be around. And they still are, so that's good. The application process isn't any easier, however. You need an experienced team, a nonprofit organization or fiscal sponsor, two humanities advisors, and there's a lengthy application. Ken Burns' project descriptions are rumored to have been around 40 pages. But the payoff is worth it. One to three year grants in the $100,000 to $650,000 range. So like these production grants, the development grants are for documentaries that address topics in the humanities. And the application process is just as extensive. The awards range from $40,000 to $75,000. It's also a year of festival deadlines. So first up is the San Francisco International Festival of Short Films, or SFIFASFASFASFASFASFASFASFASFASFASFASFASFASFASFASFASFASFASFASFASFASFASFASFASFASFASFASFASFASFASFASFASFASFASFASFASFASFASFASFASFASFASFASF
I like to call it the Sisyphus Festival. It's SF Shorts. Oh, is that what it is? SF Shorts. There's so <laughs> many SFs, I's, F's, and S's in its name. SF Shorts sounds a lot better. It takes place in our hometowns of San Francisco, California, at the incredible Roxy Theater from October 18th to the 20th. This is the early bird deadline, so we've got some time. Unlike most festivals, all SF Shorts entries are individually screened by the festival director responsible for programming. Dang, that is a big job. Uh, The festival accepts all types of short films, which also includes music videos. And in addition to cash prizes and awards, the festival offers significant travel stipends to filmmakers attending the festival, which is rare for a short film festival, so we definitely encourage you to apply with your work. And next up, the SAG-AFTRA Foundation's New York Short Film Showcase has a deadline on January 8th. This takes place on March 28th, 2018 in New York City. If you had any SAG actors in your short, you can submit for this little showcase. The SAG-AFTRA Foundation's New York Short Film Showcase is a cinematic celebration of new projects by union performers designed to encourage performers to create their own short films and web series. It's held twice a year in March and September, and the showcase features a shorts program followed by a Q&A with the film's directors, producers, and actors who are all present at the screening. Entries must be completed projects and not run more than 20 minutes, including credits. And if you've submitted to the Los Angeles SAG-AFTRA Foundation Showcase, you are ineligible to submit to the New York Showcase. And on January 10th is the deadline for the San Luis Obispo International Film Festival. We're California heavy today. This one takes place March 13th to the 18th in San Luis Obispo, California. It's the extended deadline, so your last chance... Last year marked the third time this festival was named to the Movie Maker Magazine's list of the top 50 festivals worth the entry fee. And there are $1,000 cash prizes for Best Narrative Feature and Best Doc Feature, and $500 cash prizes for Best Narrative Shorts, Documentary Shorts, and Student Films of any length. Since we're just back from holiday break, we will replace our regular weekly Words of Wisdom segment with a recap of some of the awesome year and review coverage that we published the week between Christmas and New Year's. There were so many good posts and hot takes from many of our writers. What were your favorites, John? Um, well, a lot of my end-of-the-year wrap-up posts had been focused on this very podcast. So I wrote up an article which recaps our 15 most popular interviewed episodes this year, and it ranks them by the amount of plays each individual episode receives. Um, so I thought I might as well bring up one of my favorite from that group of podcasts right now. Uh, of course, I already mentioned like eight times that interviewing Sean Baker was more than just a favorite this year for me. It was kind of a lifetime experience. So I thought I'd talk about one that came in at the top five, which is how to make a movie entirely on your own. This is an episode where we had a director named Parker Smith as a guest to talk about his experience filming his debut feature, Ramblin' Freak. His movie is essentially a documentary about a cross-country road trip he took from Austin to NYC with his cat to find a bodybuilder who took so many steroids that his arms actually physically exploded. But it is also a story about him coming to terms with his twin sister's death and a study on the disease that killed them. The most impressive part of the documentary, however, is that Smith did every aspect of production completely by himself. So... It's a great podcast, and I'm going to feature portions of it in our next Best of 2017 podcast on Monday. So to hear more about Smith's trip, you should definitely tune in. And if you haven't listened to last week's Best of 2017 podcast, you should definitely check it out. It's basically this section, Weekly Words of Wisdom, uh, on IFW times six, with advice from the directors of Landline, Ingrid Goes West, Brigsby Bear, and more. I really enjoyed that episode, too. 
In terms of the year in review coverage, I really liked one that I worked on with our new managing editor, Eric Lures, actually our first collaboration. It's called the 10 Most Politically Explosive Docs of the Year. And well, it's spelled like it sounds. Watching the movies in preparation for the post and then reading it reminded me what an amazing year it was for political documentaries in the face of such a globally tumultuous landscape. And these films just felt really urgent and exciting. But it's not only the topics of the films, it seems like the documentary form continues to sharpen. And now, as I said in the article, many of these play out like the best fiction thrillers. And more than one of the directors received death threats in real life for their provocative work. So it's like intense stuff. The list includes everything from films by Oscar-winning directors like Laura Poitras's Risk about WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange, to first-time filmmakers Sabah Foleyan and Damon Davis's up-close-and-personal view of the Black Lives Matter movement in Whose Streets. If you want an overview of all the best in political storytelling from the year, I definitely encourage you to check out the post and then watch the films. We will link to that, as well as John's end-of-year coverage in this week's podcast post. So with the new year, there's lots to look forward to. The Golden Globes are coming up this Sunday, January 7th, so we'll make sure to cover film-related winners and news on the site. As a preview slash refresher, Seth Meyers is hosting this year, and in the movie categories, The Shape of Water was most nominated with seven nods, including Best Picture. The Post and Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri tied for second with six nominations each, and Lady Bird came in third with four. I'm personally most curious as to whether Get Out will win in the Best Comedy or Musical category and what Jordan Peele's acceptance speech will be like if it does. CES, the world's biggest consumer tech show, also kicks off next week, so we'll be keeping an eye on anything film or video related. And finally, next week we'll be publishing our most anticipated films of 2018, so let us know if there are any that you think should be on our radars. Yeah, and as I mentioned, next Monday, this Monday, I guess, on the podcast, uh, you'll be able to hear part two of our best episodes of 2017, which uh, contains excerpts from The Florida Project's Sean Baker, uh, The Square's Ruben Osland, and uh, even Troma founders Lloyd Kaufman and uh, his wife and his daughter, who uh, started Kid Split. So uh, those are all excerpts that you can hear on the show on Monday, and they're great. Meanwhile, feel free to stay in touch with the contrarian Jim underscore John underscore Jim on Twitter. Now, see, I flipped the script. Now you have to do it. I don't that. have to say. And also Liz Film. Yeah. Or the newly <laughs> acquainted with Twitter at Charles Haynes. Charles has had Twitter for a while, though. I, I don't know, but I feel he doesn't check it. He's like a grandpa. Like he has it, and he's like, what is this thing? Oh. Get off my lawn. Anyway, we're all at No Film School. We hope you'll also check out nofilmschool.com to get brand new film-related content every single day. Subscribe to the No Film School podcast and rate us on iTunes. And we will look forward to seeing you next week. Happy New Year! <laughs>